2: Hello and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My name is Jerusalem Demsis. We're taping the show on January 6th, 2022, which is a year after the storming of the Capitol. Um, And I was really interested in talking about radicalization, terrorism, the far right with an expert who could walk us through some of the social science research here. Uh, So I decided to call up Professor Peter Newman. He's a professor of security studies at the Department of War Studies at King's College London. And he's written several books on all those topics, including a bunch of papers on homegrown radicalization and the far right. And I'm excited for the conversation you're about to hear. Welcome, Peter.
3: Hi, Jerusalem.
2: So first things first, we're going to be using the word radicalization a lot, and it feels important to have a more specific grasp on what that word actually means. I think for my part, I often see people using the term to describe, you know, the individual process by which someone becomes willing to engage in actions that we consider outside the bounds of regular political expression. Um, And, you know, to go onto the road to violence and take on the sort of tactics that we would consider illiberal or undemocratic expression. So is there a better way of defining that or thinking about it?
3: No, I think that's actually pretty good. Um, I would always distinguish between two types of radicalization. There is the cognitive radicalization, which involves beliefs. And you talked about that, whereby people become so extreme in their belief system that they are willing to overthrow a democratic system. They are no longer willing to tolerate others' views or expression. And then there's violent radicalization, whereby people expressly engage in violence in order to pursue these objectives. And it's important to distinguish the two of them, because even though it's true that cognitive radicalization often is a precondition for someone becoming violent, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. And so you can be, for example, a racist, right, without being violent about it. But most people would still say that's a pretty extreme opinion or a pretty radical view to hold. So cognitive radicalization, I believe, is a thing. Whilst, you know, it's also clear that it's not violent radicalization and it's not necessarily criminal, but it's still a form of radicalization.
2: You've written about sort of the different models of radicalization that exist, and there's a lot of metaphors like staircase or pyramid or conveyor belt that are thrown around that sort of describe the gradual process by which someone can get immersed in these ideas. What does the social science tell us about which models seem to be the best fit for uh, understanding the process by which people become radicalized? And you know, if mm. we can talk specifically maybe about what happened to folks at January six if if there are models that apply to them?
3: I think that it's really, a mistake to believe that there is a sort of holy grail, that there is a model that is the best fit for every type of radicalization. There's plenty of models and theories out there, and I've looked at many of them, and basically what I've found is that although they are all very different and they emphasize different factors, and that's what a lot of the academic debate is about, there are certain elements that they have in common. And one element, for example, is grievance. People do feel aggrieved, and often that creates a so-called cognitive opening where people believe that they have to do something about something. Uh, A second element is emotional needs. Often, being a member of an extremist group feels quite invigorating for the people who are part of it. They feel that they have a stronger identity, they feel that they are part of a family, they feel that they are taking part in an adventure. It's very exciting. It's about power. It's about dominance sometimes. So these emotional needs are often fulfilled by extremist groups. A third element uh, is, of course, ideology. In order for something to become politically motivated violence or politically motivated extremism, there has to be a political rationale to it. And so people at some point have to learn a justification, which doesn't necessarily have to be very sophisticated. It doesn't necessarily involve months of studying or debating texts. It can be very, very simple. And that's, for example, to some extent, what we've seen in the case of January 6th. A fourth element is a social element. Even though we do have lone wolf extremism, as it is sometimes called, most processes of radicalization are still group-based. People are being influenced by... Uh, groups of friends or so-called influencers, charismatic figures, etc. And so if you add up those four elements, grievance, uh, social process, ideology, and emotional needs, you have sort of the building blocks of processes of radicalization. And whilst there is no precise sequence that this kind of model suggests, It gives you the tools that you can use in order to analyze individual radicalization processes, because in most of them, you will find these elements popping up in different ways and forms.
2: A lot of times after major events like January 6th or other sorts of terrorist actions occur, whether it's, you know, Dylan Roof in South Carolina or the El Paso shooter or things like this, um, there's a lot of attention and time spent trying to understand the individual psychology of people who, you know, undergo these radicalization events and end up in these places. How useful is it to understand the specific individual process of radicalization that happens in in a person versus understanding the larger context by which that radicalization gets weaponized into becoming a problem?
3: So, I mean, this is exactly the point. So it depends on what discipline you're from. Obviously, if you're a psychologist, that's what you're primarily looking at. And I think it is useful. However, I, being a political scientist, I always emphasize also contextual factors. I do think that the, the same person in a different context probably would not have done what he or she has done. So it, all, it always starts with the political context. So if you take, for example, the Iraq War in 2003, afterwards in 2004, 2005, you had a huge insurgency Thousands and thousands of people got radicalized into extremist groups or what we would consider to be extremist groups, including al-Qaeda in Iraq. The very same people five years before probably would not have done anything. It was the context of the American invasion of Iraq that created a different situation that made them radicalize. Of course, they have agency and they did stuff about it. And there are people who didn't radicalize even though the context was very bad. But overall, the context is what facilitates individual processes.
2: Is it agency that separates people who become radicalized to people who don't? Or are there specific contexts that have to occur or any kind of necessary preconditions that have to occur to get someone to the place where they behave this way?
3: Sure, and and that's where a lot of things come in. To it So yes, you do have a similar context applying to everyone, and then some people get radicalized, other people do not get radicalized. So even if you account for everything, if you account for individual predispositions, maybe someone is more sort of aggressive by personalities, maybe some people are perhaps more interested in ideology, etc., 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 Uh, And of course, we know that most people engaging in violence are male, for example. So if you account for gender as well, even if you account for all of these factors, you still end up with a lot more people who do not become radicalized than people who do. And that's where contingency comes in. I think in many cases, having studied many of these biographies, it kind of happens to be an accident. You know, you run into someone who is an extremist. And you're exposed to that person, whereas another person doesn't know anyone who is an extremist, does not become exposed to that, and therefore, even though he's kind of similar, does not become an extremist. So contingency is is also a factor. The reason why it is so complicated is because usually radicalization is such a rare event. It's such a rare event that even if you operate with a lot of macro variables like poverty of socioeconomic factors, gender, et cetera, et cetera, it's still not enough to explain such a rare event.
2: You made a distinction earlier that I'd like to dive into a little bit more about the difference between cognitive radicalization and behavioral radicalization. Mm. And Cognitive, of course, as you said, is is the idea that someone's taking on these sort of more extreme ideas, um, is engaging with ideologies that are considered outside of the mainstream in some way. And then behavioral is actually taking action. Like on January 6th, the people who would actually beat up the Capitol Police officers or um, engage in other sorts of building the noose or things like that, which are obviously very extreme actual actions. Mm-hmm. And why did these distinctions become important in radicalization research? And as I was reading into it, it feels like there are a lot of people who kind of reject even the idea of radicalization as a phenomenon. Why does that happen? And, and how are those things related?
3: Wow, those are all very good questions. Um, I, I, I mean, to start with the last one, I do accept that there's a lot of criticism of the term radicalization out there. And obviously, it is something that you have to be very sure about how to use in order to use it. I do think it exists. At least the people who criticize it, whenever I challenge them to come up with something better than than that, um, they kind of they kind of fail. And the idea behind radicalization, simply expressed, is that no one becomes an extremist overnight. No one becomes uh, kind of goes to bed at night and wakes up in the morning storming the capital or blowing up a building. So there has to be a process. And that's what radicalization is about. You can call it something different, but basically the bottom line is to try to understand how does someone turn into a bomber? Or how does someone turn into someone who storms the Capitol and wants to assassinate the Vice President of the United States, right? And that can involve ideological elements, social elements, psychological elements, political contextual elements. And understanding or studying radicalization is basically about trying to understand what factors, in what sequence, in what relation to each other played a role? That's how I understand radicalization, even though I'm open to and I accept a lot of the criticism. And I do think that the term is sometimes being abused by political leaders who basically describe their opponents as extremists or as radicals. So that's beside the point. The way I use it, I'm you know pretty confident about it. So, yes, I, I, I do think we we do in in every society have um, a lot of people who are cognitive extremists. Uh, in every society, you have, uh, for example, a lot of racist people, racist attitudes that's still very common. Very few of these people engage in violence, and I do think that addressing the cognitive problem, for example, requires different instruments from addressing the violent problem. So the example of racism is a good one. Under the first First Amendment in your country, for example. You can be a racist. You you are free to hold racist views. No one can punish you for that. Still, most people in society in the United States would recognize that racism is a problem. It needs to be fought. It needs to be fought not, however, with law enforcement, but it needs to be fought politically. You need to confront racism within society. Whereas if a racist who holds racist views then blows up a building like, let's say, for example, Black Church or something like that, that's a matter for law enforcement because that involves a criminal act. This is something that is not acceptable in a society. And obviously the instruments that are needed to counter it are different from the ones that are needed to counter cognitive radicalization.
2: One of the objections I've heard to this distinction uh, between the cognitive and and the uh, behavioral radicalization is just that, you know, it it presupposes that uh, part of why the action, the behavioral action happened is because of the cognitive action. Whereas there's another model, Mm -hmm. which is just that, you know, there are a lot of violent people. If they're randomly distributed in the population, some of them are going to have racist views and some of them will have other types of extremist views. but. One thing that's been put out recently is that a lot of the people who stormed the Capitol were, um, you know, very regular individuals. They were people who were office workers or bankers who flew in and, you know, came to Washington, D.C. and found themselves sort of swept up. And obviously those are separate from the groups that we've seen, like the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys and, and people who are a part of organized far-right militias. But, I mean, is it even necessary to hold radical views to take actions like this?
3: See, I would be... I would be more nuanced in that, in the sense that I completely agree that there are people that are basically followers. Um, They are joining these events because bodies of them are part of it or because they feel it's exciting. And that's why I, I was talking about the sense of excitement that is involved, the emotional needs that are fulfilled by participating in an extremist act or in an extremist group. And they are not particularly ideological. But these events would not be taking place if there were not at least some people who were rationalizing all of this in an ideological or cognitive way, that are creating the ideological pull, and that are telling people that by doing what they are doing, by engaging in these acts of violence, they are actually doing something positive. Because that's the point of the ideology. That's a really important point about the ideology. No one wants to see themselves as an aggressor. No one wants to see themselves as someone doing harm without necessity. What the ideology does, it creates in your mind, if you want, a switch, a justification that allows you to engage in violence and feel that you're justified for doing so that 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 you're in fact defending your people rather than attacking other people and that someone has to do in order for these events to happen and i agree totally not everyone is equally affected by ideology not everyone is an ideologue not everyone sits down at home studies text etc but there are some people within that movement who are basically doing the ideological work and other people are following them and that's why i'm i'm you know skeptical about people who say it's all about ideology and everyone is an ideologue that's clearly not the case but someone within the movement has to define what's right and what's wrong and under what conditions violence is justified. And that's basically the ideological work that goes into an extremist event.
2: All right, we're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we're going to dive in a little bit more about the types of people that get radicalized.
4: Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu/slash NAP. That's
0: N-A-P-P. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously, hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing.
2: And we're back. So to date, the vast majority of people charged with crimes from the January 6th insurrection, approximately 87 percent, according to one figure, um, don't you know, belong to formal organizations. You know, although some of these groups were, you know, organizing um, before January sixth. We've seen research recently that shows that there were a lot of just random free agents, like we were talking about, and and lone wolves. But I also want to talk about the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and the role they play. Um, at the end of the last segment, you were talking a little bit about um, who plays the role in defining um, when violence becomes acceptable, defining the bounds of an ideology, defining the bounds of when radical acts become an acceptable part of the political framework that um, these so-called free agents are now participating in. And so some people have kind of framed the events of January 6th as descended from, of course, like things like the Turner Diaries, where we saw the imagery of the noose outside the Capitol being erected. But also others are saying that the ideology is kind of being defined by more normal Republican political officials, folks like Donald Trump, who was giving a speech beforehand telling people that they needed to save the country, save democracy by stopping what was happening in the Capitol at the time. So who is doing this kind of defining power? In, in, in the events of January 6th? Was it Republican regular elected officials? Was it these extremist groups? Like, Who is actually leading the charge here?
3: Well, I think it was all of them, really. I think within a lot of these extremist movements, you find people at the very extreme of the extremism that are pushing the boundaries and that are saying things that are not even acceptable to other people of that particular movement. And then there are people more in the mainstream who are literally, quote unquote, mainstreaming some of these beliefs. And that's, of course, what's happened, in my view, over the past four, four and a half years with Donald Trump being in office and being in power. He's not, as far as I know, openly or expressly or explicitly advocated white supremacist beliefs, but he's mainstreamed a lot of the concepts that allow people to get into that. And once you buy into Donald Trump, you're watching Tucker Carlson and you're getting deeper and deeper into the weeds and you end up with the Proud Boys, with the Oath Keepers, who give you um, the unvarnished truth, as they would say. And so you have different gradations of, of concepts being mainstreamed. And that's what's particularly important and dangerous, I think, also about January 6th, because it was the beginning of what some people call a mass radicalization, where large segments of the population are affected by extremist views and where the whole system is being no longer accepted by people. And that's even more dangerous, I would say, than individual acts of terrorism. Because if you have a third of the population that doesn't accept the legitimacy of the president doesn't accept the legitimacy of the election doesn't accept legitimacy therefore of every decision that is being taken by that system how long can you maintain that system that's what's so dangerous about this particular event yes the storming of the capitol could have gotten much worse but subsequently we've seen very large segments of the population continuing to believe in these ideas and continuing to refuse to accept the legitimacy of the system
2: one thing that comes up for a lot of people when they hear this sort of thing is that what is defined as the bounds of radical, unacceptable radical opinion is like very much up for debate. Obviously a lot of things that we would've considered radical opinions a hundred years ago, for instance that you know, black Americans should have full access to the political and social and cultural institutions of the United States in the same protections as white Americans. It's a very radical belief. And you could paint the same picture of like there being somewhat more mainstream politicians sort of gradually introducing those ideas into the mainstream and then the more, quote unquote, radical groups um, bringing into the fore uh, you know, ideas of racial and political equality. And you know, it seems like the process itself is not what the issue is. It seems like there is this pre-work that has to be done to define what is an un- Unacceptable an and an acceptable idea, and that there is a now a growing segment of the population that no longer agrees with many liberal intuitions that exist in the United States. That um, it's unacceptable to have fascistic beliefs, and so how do you do that work without undermining the democratic norms of places like the U.S., where free speech and free expression is supposed to be, you know, paramount?
3: Well, first of all, everything you say is correct, and and of course, what's mainstream is defined by context, it's defined by time, and the whole books, there's, there's a great ontology out there called The Radical Reader, and basically has texts from different times in American history where different groups were essentially being described as extremists, people who were arguing in favor of abolishing slavery, people who argued in favor of giving women the right to vote people who were arguing in favor of civil rights. They were all describe extremists and all, to some extent, are persecuted by, by, by the authorities at different points in time, whereas nowadays, those views are obviously, hopefully, mainstream. Now, the problem is with this particular movement that we saw a year ago is that perhaps for the first time in American history, This is a radical movement that doesn't go in the direction of more equality for more people, but actually wants to turn back the tide. And it actually wants to narrow down what is considered to be mainstream. And uh, so, in that sense, it's a regressive uh, movement, it's a reactionary movement. And I can't kind of remember any movement recently that would have been as powerful in conveying that message or that would have succeeded in getting the allegiance of about a third of the population. So that's, I think, what makes it dangerous. All the previous radical movements in American history were essentially about about broadening and making freedom available to more people. This is the first one that actually wants to narrow down the scope of freedom in American society.
2: One of the things that has been talked about a lot is uh, this this idea of the kind of like the great replacement theory. When we're talking about mainstreaming ideas that are radicalizing folks, is you know this is an idea that gained a lot of purchase in France, and then now has kind of hopped over to the United States. The Census Bureau has projected that racial minority groups will make up um, a majority of the U.S. national population by 2042. Um, of course, that's you know uh, what happens there is up for debate. Do 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 we expand the definition of whiteness? Who knows? But in, in by current definitions, that's what we're we're seeing. And, um, you know, there was a study that I saw from Northwestern University researchers that looked at California's majority minority shift and saw that politically unaffiliated white Americans started leaning more towards the Republican Party and expressing more conservative views um, more strongly than they had beforehand as this shift goes underway. So should we be expecting this sort of trend to continue? Like, are we is, is the response January 6th just more and more of these radical actions or or what's the future as as this becomes more mainstream?
3: I can tell you that this particular theory, the Great Replacement by Renaud Camus, a French intellectual, if you want, um, that this has become uh, very popular on both sides of the Atlantic. And it basically argues that there is a conspiracy going on whereby the elites in Western countries are systematically trying to replace their own populations. And they are doing this out of different interests. The economic elites are doing it because they want cheap labor. And the intellectual elites, the professors and the journalists and the intellectuals are doing it out of self-hatred. They want to undermine the strength of the nation. And that's why they are replacing white European populations with what they consider to be inferior populations. In In the European context, Muslims. In the American context, all sorts of outsider Hispanics, um, people from Africa, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, that's, of course, a conspiracy theory. It's not actually true, but they do believe it to be true. And they do think there's a master plan working. And the particular dangerous point about that is that it's obviously it's a it's it's, it's a conspiracy theory directed. At immigrants, but it's also, and at the same time, a conspiracy theory directed at the elites within society because they are essentially the root cause. They are the ones who are behind all of this. And uh, so, in that sense, uh, Joe Biden for them is as much of a problem as the immigrants coming into the country because Joe Biden, they believe, is essentially the mastermind behind all of this. And of course, it it also then connects to even anti-Semitic theories because there are people saying basically the people behind all of the, even the people behind Joe Biden, those are the Jews. And so there you are again in classical far-right territory, which is really awful. But by saying great replacement, which is essentially something that Donald Trump even has talked about, you're making it sound slightly more sophisticated and And you're suggesting that there's a reasoning behind it when, in fact, it is really a conspiracy theory.
2: There's a really great piece today by Hakeem Jefferson about uh, uh, the white backlash as part of the racial reckoning of um, the United States, like just just as much as a racial reckoning is around Black Americans and uh, people of color kind of, you know, uh, showing the harms that racism has done to them. It's also um, white backlash is a normal part of that movement. So is this something that can even be stopped or mediated or is this just something that we should expect to happen?
3: Well, I I, I mean, there's someone like Robert Pape um, basically did a study after the storming of the Capitol last year, and he basically said this is the main reasoning or the main factor involved behind people going there. Ultimately, I think uh, and not being American, I'm looking, at this, I'm looking at this from an outside perspective, I think there are two different ideas of America. Um, there is what I would consider now the mainstream idea of America, which basically says everyone can be American regardless of race or wherever they came from. But I think it is a mistake to underestimate how many white Americans do not actually really buy into that and who do essentially think of America as a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant nation, which ultimately in the beginning it kind of was, but it's evolved from that. And I think there is a very significant proportion of the population who hasn't made the step towards accepting the more pluralistic idea of america that is now mainstream and that is being that has been articulated actually since every president since john f kennedy with the possible exception of donald trump
2: and when we say mainstream um you know Obviously, it's become mainstream culturally. It's become mainstream in terms of what is acceptable to say without getting a bunch of negative media attention. But as as you noted, like there's a difference between that. And, you know, I think a lot of times elites were surprised at the election of Donald Trump because they assumed it was much more mainstream than it actually was. And uh, mainstream also being uh, what, what the dominant you know, if you polled people what they believed, I would imagine that there's like a significant amount of people um, for going back even through John F. Kennedy and and, and to now um, that have always said that primarily they would want America to remain like, a you know, a Christian nation or an Anglo-Saxon nation or maintain those kinds of Euro, um, European uh, cultural traditions. And so, you know, if you if if that has always been the case here, what does that mean then about what is considered radical and what is considered mainstream?
3: I think what it means is that uh, certain elites, including uh, democratic elites over the past uh, few decades, have kind of lost touch or interest in what their voters actually believed and stood for. And that the, the fact that they were surprised by the election of Donald Trump, the fact that they didn't see this happening because this didn't happen overnight, shows that there was a disenchantment, a process of alienation that has played out over a long period of time where perhaps the elites and people that are important in society people that are educated have moved on but have left a lot of people behind that have simply not made the same development and that then ended up uh, voting for Donald Trump it's easy i mean it's it's easy and it's right obviously to to accuse republicans but i think it's also correct to kind of to discuss at least to what extent Democrats over the decades have actually lost touch with the people that they took for granted for a long time and that simply didn't move as fast as they themselves did and I think that's a failure that everyone has to reflect upon
2: part of that that people always talk about is kind of like poverty and economic uh, inequality kind of being at the a prerequisite for taking radical political action. But there's, you know, a growing body of work pointing to sort of relative poverty and failed expectations rather than absolute poverty as what leads to this sort of radicalization. Can you talk us through the social science there and what your perspective is on the role of economic circumstances?
3: So economic circumstances are, um, that's one of the classical topics, is poverty, a cause of terrorism. And basically every serious study that has been conducted for the past, 20 years has shown that it's not that simple and that certainly just someone being poor doesn't necessarily uh, cause that person to be an extremist. In fact, if it's extreme poverty, uh, the opposite has been shown to be true because people who are extremely poor are so preoccupied with their own survival, they don't have time to think about engaging in politically motivated action. And you're completely right. Most of the studies that still make the case for economic circumstances being important, they talk about relative deprivation or failed expectations, which is essentially about you comparing yourself to others and being unhappy about getting less than them. And often this is connected to narratives about justice in society. So it's not even necessarily just about economic circumstances. It's you're feeling deprived relative to another group because you have less, but also because you're getting less respect or because you feel that your views are not being heard. So typically economic circumstances are part of a more complex narrative that involves political arguments as well.
2: And there's a line in a paper by um, professor at Georgetown, um, Anatole Levin, um, where he writes, uh, the unemployed or underemployed graduate is one of the most dangerous of all political actors. And in in that paper, he's specifically talking about Islamic radicalization in the Middle East. But he makes this point that we often think of education as being a solution to both labor market problems, but also um, to radicalization. But he's raising this point here that elite overproduction could be part of the problem um, of why we're seeing um, increasing amounts of radicalization. And and, and you know, what do you think about that idea?
3: He used to be a colleague of mine, and I've heard him make that point many, many times. And I actually think he's onto something. If you produce a lot of graduates like they did in Pakistan, and um, you don't have jobs for them, you are creating a situation where they have a lot of expectations. They are being taught it university that they have a great future ahead of them. They're being given the intellectual tools to rationalize everything, and then they end up being very frustrated. And as I said at the very beginning of our conversation, grievance is one of the building blocks of radicalization. So you're creating a lot of grievance within society. And uh, that's, of course, a huge problem. So just giving everyone and giving everyone a degree, but then not having jobs in society is not necessarily the answer.
2: We're going to take a quick break again, and then when we get back, we're going to talk about what to do about all of this radicalization.
1: In US working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.
0: Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on surprise, The Future of Work.
2: There are obviously two ways or two broad ways that people can respond to radicalization. And there's this sort of police response that I want to talk about first and, you know, responding um, with the law and the force of the law. Colin Clark, who's a political scientist, had an op-ed today and Um, One of the things that he points out is that there's been quite a bit of federal law enforcement activity in response to January 6th. Um, To date, he writes, more than 700 individuals have been charged with federal crimes for their role in the insurrection. The city of Washington, D.C. has sued the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, seeking severe financial penalties. Given how paranoid many far-right extremist groups are about being infiltrated, many have gone underground and attempted to drop off the grid to avoid further entanglement with the authorities. That, to me, seems like a success story of, of police. Action, in federal law enforcement in response. Why? Why can't we just continue doing that? Why can't we just have federal law enforcement action going after these groups repeatedly and um, you know taking them underground if they are so paranoid about infiltration and and being engaged? So why is that not a, a, a full and sufficient solution to the problem?
3: Well, it's not a full and sufficient solution to the problem for two reasons. Number one, because no matter how hard you try, it will always be a sort of whack-a-mole strategy in the sense that Other people will turn up in different places. You will be unlucky some of the time. So bad things will still happen because in a free society, you cannot have 100% policing everywhere. So there may still be people committing acts of violence that you didn't know about. But generally speaking, you're of course right. I think you should go after them with law enforcement as much as you can. And if people commit criminal acts, you should prosecute them. The bigger problem, the second reason why it's not enough is, and that's what Colin talks about in his op-ed, is because you now have a situation where instead of taking violent action, a lot of these people um, are basically spreading their beliefs into the mainstream. And you now have a situation where um, a third of the population and a significant majority of uh, supporters of the Republican Party, for example, do not accept the legitimacy of the election of Joe Biden do believe that sometimes it is necessary to use violence in order to, to get your way, even in the United States of America, and condone the storming of the Capitol. And to some extent, whilst these people have not been successful in launching acts of terror, they've been successful in something that is much more important, which is to get people to support their extremist views. And that is much more dangerous for the political system in the long term than um to have some people carry out acts of violence, which is of course tragic for the people who are being who are being hurt in them, but which is not ultimately very very dangerous for the stability of the United States of America.
2: You you talk about how in online radicalization um folks are immersed in extremist content for extended periods of time they're immersed with graphic images and videos you describe several of the pathways that researchers have identified things like creating a sense of moral outrage by showing videos in conflict zones but you're not very you know gung ho on supply side measures of reducing radicalization um uh, you know banning these types of content or taking down these sites you instead kind of advocate for more demand side can you can you explain the distinction there and why you think the latter is better
3: First of all, I'm very impressed that you found an article by me that is more than 10 years old. So that's great. But uh, like all academics, uh, I have to some extent changed my views. And, uh, and I'm actually now much more gung-ho, as you would say, in terms of taking down content. I do think that um, social media platforms do have a responsibility. And if people encourage or incite violence... I think it oversteps their own community guidelines and they should invest more money and effort into removing that kind of content. I think it is very important that they do that because it is toxic. The problem is that there is a lot of content that people in the tech community describe as awful but lawful, awful but lawful. For example, conspiracy theories. A lot of conspiracy theories are stupid. They are nonsense. But it's not illegal to talk nonsense. It's not illegal to be stupid. And so if someone wants to claim that Bill Gates is injecting people with kind of micro sensors uh, that allow them to be monitored by Microsoft, that is, of course, idiotic, but it is not illegal. And I think it's very, very difficult for social media companies, never mind the government, um, to decide at what point idiocy, at what point stupidity becomes so problematic that you have to remove it from a website that is technically protected by the First Amendment. And that is such a conundrum that overall, I would say it is still not only not advisable, I would say in many cases it is impossible really uh, for the government to become involved in that. Because it involves decisions that are really difficult and that are a legal minefield. So yes, when it's about inciting violence, I do think that social media companies should should show more responsibility with regards to a lot of the other content. It is really difficult. And of course, you know, as we've seen with in in all of these cases recently, uh, once you once that say YouTube for example starts removing content, the people whose content is being removed are immediately feeling victimized. They are saying they are being discriminated against, they are being victimized, and it, it perhaps has a counterproductive effect. So this is all very, very difficult.
2: Now I'm interested in how this shift happened. How did you change your mind on this and what, what kinds of evidence did you come across?
3: To be honest, um, it was uh, so-called Islamic State, ISIS, uh, middle, in the middle of last decade which was so active on the internet, really before before the middle of last decade, I had this naive, perhaps libertarian view of the marketplace of ideas. You know, the internet is great. Let, allow people to say stupid things. There will be more people out there who are using reason to combat it. And the good, reasonable opinion will always emerge victorious. Um, That's, of course, the view that a lot of people in Silicon Valley have. And that's why a lot of tech companies were so reluctant to actually take down content, not only because they thought it would be expensive, but also because they actually believed that allowing that content to exist on the internet was a positive thing because people would start arguing with these people and they would convince them of the reasonable mainstream view. And in the case of ISIS, we saw that that clearly didn't happen. Uh, ISIS was in 2014-15 flooding the internet with propaganda that actually convinced people to go to Syria and fight there. And there was very little was done to engage with that content or to convince ISIS people to change their mind. Obviously, that didn't work. And the only way you could really get to grips with it was to say, well, you can't be on Facebook anymore you can't be on twitter anymore we have to remove your content because you are actually advocating killing people and that's not right and i think even the social media companies at that point got they received so much political pressure that they caved essentially probably despite their better convictions and started removing content and today on mainstream media social media platforms like twitter like facebook instagram etc It's really difficult to be a jihadist and have your profile up for more than 24 hours. And what people like myself are saying to the social media companies is basically do the same for far-right extremism. What you demonstrated that can be done in the case of ISIS, do the same for far-right extremism. I think they've started doing that, but they could do more.
2: To play um, more of an advocate for the libertarian perspective here, mm-hmm. and to kind of draw a distinction, like I think there's there's obviously a difference between the types of websites and you know Facebook groups that are you know actively recruiting for terrorist groups or to take violent political action, and then you know on large platforms like Facebook or Twitter, uh, someone publicly saying they're radical idea and then having the opportunity for there to be a response and I think the distinction here is both a like what someone is advocating for and b whether it is a platform where there's actually an engagement of ideas occurring and while I you know I think I'm, I'm pretty I'm very clearly in agree with with you on um you know banning the sorts of groups that are advocating for this violent political action and getting rid of pages that are advocating for people to become jihadists and things like that on places like Facebook or even Twitter where there is quite a response and back and forth happening about these ideas, um, you know, it it seems like calling back to what you said earlier in the conversation about how a lot of people in in, in the United States and even in other Western countries do not share the um, liberal sentiments about small democratic um, norms that elite individuals have thought that they shared for a long time. And if there isn't an opportunity for persuasion, then it seems like there's no path forward. So I guess what would be the path forward for you if we don't have the opportunity in the public square to have this sort of debate?
3: So, I think on that, um, three points. Um, The the first one is I mean, for me, the priority is incitement to violence. So, you have to draw the line at that point. If someone is inciting to violence, I think it needs to go. Everything else, um, I do agree with you to some extent, even though we know that there is a phenomenon in social psychology called reactance. And basically, what it describes is that if someone is really convinced of a cause and you're trying to persuade him otherwise um, actually your attempt to persuade him or her uh, may actually cause him or her to become even more uh, committed to their cause and many of the people who are on the internet and who are sharing their views they are not kind of fence sitters they are pretty sure of what they think and A lot of the attempts to convince them otherwise, and trust me, a lot of money has been invested in trying to to do that, including by governments, um, have by and large failed. So I sympathize with your view, um, but I remain to be convinced of how it can actually be done on scale, right? Um, So I I want to see um, the best minds in tech come up with ideas for how to convince and engage people in conversations that are deep inside ideological holes and to, if you want, de-radicalize them. I haven't, maybe it exists, but I haven't seen a really good model of that happening. And then the third point is, and there I actually agree with the social media companies who used to say, well, we're only taking down incitement to violence. And recently they've basically said, if it's a bad actor, If it's a bad actor that engages or incites violence, even the videos, for example, where he or she doesn't incite violence need to be taken down. So if the KKK is publishing recipes or tells people how to pray, that will be taken down, too, because the KKK generally is an actor that engages in incitement to violence. And just because some of the videos they publish are nice doesn't necessarily make it okay. Right? And so I think, again, one has to be a little bit nuanced in that. And I sympathize with a lot of your views. But in particular, when it comes to the persuasion element, I've heard that argument so many times before. And a lot of people say that I want to see how this works in practice. And so far, no one has shown me. Well, maybe you can find an anecdote of someone who has been persuaded. But no one has shown me how you could systematically utilize the Internet to bring people back into the mainstream. If someone comes up with that, I'm happy to change.
2: Yeah, I think I would agree with you that it seems um, probably near impossible to convince someone who is arguing with you about, you know, either really far right or far left or radical views of their position that they should change it. But I would say that I think it's more about who's watching those views and whether they see any counter argument come and And, you know, especially if we're talking about uh, the process of online radicalization, what you describe in a lot of the research that we talked about is it's, it's a slow build. And if someone is presented with many alternatives along with that slow build, perhaps that could be a diversionary tactic for them rather than for someone who's already in the mix.
3: Absolutely. I I 100% agree with you. You made an important point. And a lot of the attempts that have been made to influence people online have not actually been about the people who posted stuff, but about the people who peered in, the people who responded and who wanted more information. And so I think that's the right way uh, to focus on the people who are engaging with content rather than on the people who are posting that content. So you're absolutely right on that
2: you know, this kind of reminds me of Austrian, the famous quote from uh, Austrian philosopher Karl Popper about, uh, um, we should claim that any movement preaching intolerance places itself outside the law, and we should consider incitement to intolerance and persecution as criminal, um, basically saying that, you know, we need to stop giving unlimited tolerance to those who are actually intolerant. And, and that seems to be a very, Euro- Euro- more of a European approach um, rather than an American approach. I mean, do you see that kind of changing? It feels like on the left side of the pendulum in the United States, we're having more and more people um, taking on that position.
3: Well, I I do think it's going to be interesting to see if if the current situation persists, because the reason why what you just said is considered to be the European view is because in Europe, we do have an experience of an extremist movement becoming so strong and so powerful that they basically took over the government and abolished democracy, the fascist movement that took over power in Italy and in Germany in the 1930s. And so because we have that historical, catastrophic historical experience of extremism becoming mainstream and becoming the democracy, becoming the majority and and subverting democracy by using the tools of democracy, there's less of a tolerance towards extremist views. And in America, you have this very confident view that your system is so stable and your people in the United States are so reasonable. That they will always defy extremists. Now, for the first time, perhaps, we have a situation where a very significant number of individuals are anti-system. They are defying the legitimacy of an election. I don't think if I don't know if that has ever happened in American history, that more than a third of the population said this is not the legitimate president. And it is under cer- certain circumstances legitimate to take violent action against the United States of America. I don't think that has ever happened before. And the question is, what do you do with that? If that persists, how do you deal with a third of your country's population that is permanently disenfranchised and even to varying degrees condones Illegal action against the government. Um, That's gonna, I don't know the answer to that myself, because I deal with extremism. And the assumption of extremism is that it is actually small numbers of people at the fringes of society. That's the assumption behind behind the concept of extremism. If you're no longer dealing with small numbers of people at the fringes of society, but you're dealing with a majority or nearly a majority, then Ah, the, the, the game completely changes and then you're having a big political problem and that's the danger right now, I think.
2: I mean, one of the things that we're witnessing right now is um, Republican, some Republican elites, um, you know, creating justifications for what happened on January 6th. I mean, Donald Trump has described Ashley Babbitt as a martyr. Tucker Carlson has recently produced a, uh, a movie, Patriot Purge, an alternative history of January 6th in which the violence is a false flag. I mean, is it possible? Are there historical examples or political science research that shows how you convince a political movement to de-radicalize, especially when it arguably might be in their near term interests not to do so?
3: To be honest, I don't know. I mean, maybe uh, there are examples, but I think this is hitting the nail on the head there because that's exactly the big failure um, of the Republican Party. I do think they have, if you want, a patriotic duty to convince their own followers that, yes, we've lost the election. Our guy is out. But the election was legitimate. And you have to accept the legitimacy of the new president just like Democrats reluctantly accepted that Donald Trump became elected president. I think this is this is the ultimate precondition of democracy. The ultimate precondition of democracy is that the loser accepts the outcome, right? And we don't have that anymore. And I do think it's a failure of some mainstream Republicans to take to confront that. There's I know that there are a small number of Republicans, Liz Cheney, for example, who who do take that stand and who are very courageous and who have a lot of threats coming against them. But the failure of uh, of the mainstream of the Republican party to stand up to that is something that, as you say, in the short term, may benefit them. But I think even for them, uh, will be will be disastrous in the long term because, For these people on the fringes, you will never be extreme enough. They will always push you even further and there's literally no limit to it. So I think it would be better for them to take a stand now and they are not doing that and that's a big uh, failure.
2: Thank you so much for joining me today, Peter. I'm excited we had this conversation. Um, Folks, you're listening to this on January 7th, but we recorded this on January 6th. And uh, I'm sure there's been a lot of retrospectives already. But I'm glad we were able to have this conversation and kind of get into the social science research. So thank you again. Thank you. That's all for us today. Thank you to Professor Peter Newman for joining us. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcast. And I'm your host, Jerusalem Demsis. Dara Lind is writing our newsletter now. So go to Vox.com slash Weedsletter uh, to sign up for that. And we'll be back in your feeds Tuesday with another panel discussion. See you then.